Today, our scripture reading is out of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Thank you, Jess, Moses. Um, week one of Advent was Hope Has a Name. Morgan gave us a great word on hope. Week two was that Peace Has a Name, and Jim gave us a great word last week, and this week is that joy has a name. And the irony is not lost on me that I'm the one up here to talk about joy. <laughs> I've heard it a lot this week, actually. Um, if you know me, I'm, I tend to be a little bit of a glass-half-empty kind of guy. Um, by the way, we describe ourselves as realists. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm here to talk to you about joy. And actually, it's been a fun message to prepare for because I've learned so much um, about joy that was surprising and endearing. And I, ha I think I, I've developed a better view of God as I studied joy. Um, the first thing that we'll do, well, actually, I'll, I'll, let me explain this candle. I've had, first of all, the first week of Advent, we were up here as a staff on the stage uh, praying before the services, and Jim described Advent as the time where the rest of us get ready for Christmas, but Ryan plays with candles in public for a month. That's kind of how he's described it. Now, I've had this question, why the blue? That, that, it could either be blue or purple, but why the pink candle on the third week? This, is, this happens all over the world. There's, there's either blue or purple candles, and then week three is always the pink one. Well, Advent is a month long, right? Four Sundays. And the third Sunday is, it divides the season in two perfectly. Advent is typically a season that's somewhat somber. It has an anticipatory feel to it. Um, oftentimes, we will, will, will um, do a, a bit of a fast during Advent, fasting from sweets and preparation for the celebration that comes at Christmas, lots of these things. And week three, the third Sunday, divides the season in two. And effectively, it's this the Sunday where you break your fast. It's like a cheat day. You break your fast because the subject matter is joy. And what uh, usually, if we were in a if we were in a church where the the preacher dresses up in robes and stuff, I'd, I'd have on pink robes. I looked for a pink flannel. Shockingly, Atwoods is out. Couldn't find one, so I went with wrapping paper. Um, <laughs> But this Sunday around the world is called Gaudete Sunday. And that's from the Latin, the Latin text of Philippians 4. And Gaudete just means rejoice. And so for one day in the middle of Advent, the call for Christians around the world is to stop and celebrate. And then get back to Advent, and then we'll really, really celebrate on the 25th. So joy. Now, I had to figure out, when, you, when you're building a message around a word or a series of words, you really need to understand how they were originally used, not how we tend to use them in our language. Because I'll tell you this, I have always thought that joy 
was like a better version of happiness. Have you heard of this? Joy is permanent, but happiness is fleeting. Joy is rooted in something transcendent. Happiness is rooted in uh, temporary circumstantial stuff that you may or may not enjoy, but it's, it's going to kind of go away. It'll fade, but joy. So I thought, okay, I need to go and see how does the Bible talk about joy. And I'm just going to give you one example of how the, the, the prophet Jeremiah uses these terms, joy and happy. So we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 to begin with, first. 13. And this is, this is prophecy, but it's also poetic. And Hebrew poetry has some fun tricks it plays. Hebrew poetry isn't as interested in rhyming like we are in our poetry. They're, they're much more interested in structure and what words correspond to other words. So this is Isaiah's prophecy to the nation of Israel that God is going to set things straight. They're going to be disciplined, but God is going to set things straight. So here's what it says, just plain and simple. Then the young women will rejoice with dancing while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation, and bring happiness out of grief. Okay, simple enough. God's going to take care of it. Everyone's going to really be pleased with what God does. But let's look at these words. We have four words of interest here. We have rejoice used twice, then we have joy, and then we have happy. And I want to know the difference between them so that we can, as we explore this theme of joy this morning, we can really understand how the Bible talks about it. So first, rejoice, rejoice. When, when, um, in the, those first two lines, when Hebrew poetry repeats words, again, it's not so interested in rhyming words, but when it repeats the words, it's really starting to emphasize something. Okay, so the, the, the rejoice is just the verbal form of, of, uh, of joy, so... There's going to be much rejoicing. Now let's pull those three lines down and separate them from, because this is one sentence, and it's got a very obvious middle, and then two corresponding outsides of the sentence, okay? So the middle part is that God will give them consolation. In effect, Jeremiah is prophesying that God, he's doing it in kind of a poetic form, but God is going to console Israel. And we'll see that that leads to Jesus, of course. But they'll come home and God will console them in Jerusalem. But now let's look at words. We have mourning that turns into joy and happiness that comes out of grief. So how do these words work together? Well, mourning and grief, whenever you see them um, parallel one another in Hebrew poetry, it's, it's literally saying these are synonymous. Mourning and grief are synonymous. So what's synonymous with joy? Happiness. Biblically speaking, there is no difference between joy and happiness. In fact, you could say joy, happiness, and gladness are all the same thing in the Bible. In English, we may distinguish between them, but in, in the Bible, same Hebrew word, same Greek word, New Testament. Joy, happiness, gladness, same thing. That's important because whenever I realized that that concept is so much um, deeper and thicker than I realized, I started to discover some new things that the Bible says about God. Then, of course, you have the, the verbal form of rejoice, and uh, another word that means the same thing is delight. So, here's my, if you were to take away anything from this message, it's this. God is the most joyful being 
who has ever or will ever exist. He exists in a state of constant maximum happiness. And he delights most in himself. He delights most in himself. I want to start with joy as it manifests from God himself. Instead of establishing what we think joy is and then finding if God is, in fact, joyful, the truth is God created joy. And it's all determined according to him. It's all determined according to him. He's the happiest being that has ever existed. And one place where we can find an example of this is Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3, says, Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Now you might say, Ryan, that seems to be talking about the fact that he's big and just does what he wants. But imagine if you're perfectly sovereign, perfectly powerful, and things cannot help but go according to your divine sovereign command. So he does whatever pleases him. Everything he does pleases him. John Piper, sort of like, the, by the way, I picked up, um, it's, it's basically a Christian classic by now, but I picked up John Piper's Desiring God again. This is one of his earlier books. It's phenomenal talking about the, the joy that comes with following the Lord. This is what he says in Desiring God. He says, just as our joy is based on the promises that God is strong enough and wise enough to make all things work together for our good, that's very Romans 8-ish, so God's joy is based on that same sovereign control. He makes all things work for his glory. So my first discovery was that God is one, very, very happy when I've often thought of him as kind of a grumpy judge. No, he's full of joy. He defines joy. He exudes joy. And he is so powerful that whatever he does is by definition right and brings him great happiness. Psalm 135 continues this idea. It says, For I know that the Lord is great, our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He causes the clouds to ride from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings the wind from his storehouses. You see, he's sovereign over all creation, and as he, as he sustains creation and directs creation, it brings him delight, it pleases him. Psalm 104, may the glory of the Lord endure forever, and may the Lord rejoice in his works. I've never thought about God rejoicing in doing what he does. But if the glory of the Lord is, I think we could say with all integrity, the most important thing, then when he is glorified, he rejoices. Now, if God is a God who rejoices and a God who has deep, deep joy and he delights most in himself, then let's just follow the dominoes. Then he is going to take great pleasure in the work of his son. This is what moves us towards Christmas. 
if, if Psalm 104 is true, that the glory of the Lord endures forever and he rejoices in his own works, I wonder what kind of joy came from the Lord as he spoke creation into existence. Even in the midst of deep sadness in the garden, I wonder what sort of joy it brought him to care for Adam and Eve, to spill blood and clothe them. If he delights in his work, if he delights, if it, if it brings him joy to create stars, how much more joy would it bring the Lord to do what he did the first Christmas, to send himself, to send his son, to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to rise from the dead and to ascend back to the throne, to put things back together. If he rejoices in his works, how much does he delight in the work of Christ? 30 years after the first Christmas, Jesus shows up, and it's one of his very first public appearances. In Matthew 3, verse 16, it says that when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father delights in his Son, he delights in his work. This, of course, was prophesied way back, way, way back. 800 years before Christ came. The prophet Isaiah writes servant songs. In Isaiah chapter 42, one of the songs goes like this. This is my servant, which we'll find out 800 years later is Jesus. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. God delights in his servant. And I've put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. God delights. He rejoices in his works. And the servant will come with the strength of the Lord, chosen by the Lord, bringing joy to the Lord with the power of the spirit of the Lord, and bringing justice to the nations, doing the work of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 3, and I can't imagine many of us have been flipping through Zephaniah much lately, but we're going to go there. Zephaniah chapter 3, one of the smaller prophets, talks about the restoration that Israel was to experience after their own exile. And in Zephaniah 3, um, we get this picture of what God would do with the nation, but you also get this, this foretaste of what he'll do through his servant, through his son. It says, The Lord God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love, and he will delight in you with singing. Again, that was written sometime before Jesus but if this is how God responds to the redemption and restoration of his people, how much more will he delight in us with singing when Jesus does what Jesus does and when we connect to that by faith? You see, I, I was just so startled as I started making my way through the text at how much the Bible talks about God being really happy and overflowing with joy. 
And yet, many of us are thinking it right now. But how can he be so joyful when there's still so much pain and death and suffering, when he watches what people do to one another, when he watches the brokenness of creation as it destroys that which he loves, how can God maintain so much joy in the presence of so much darkness? I think that's why we needed to start with God is himself the most joyful being in all existence, and that is intrinsically connected to his sovereignty. Because you know, when I think of difficult circumstances, when I think of the loss of a loved one, when I think of pain and hardship, I do so with a very finite mind. I do so with an inability to see very far beyond my current circumstances. I do so with angst and worry and little to no ability to change the situation. But if I were God, like think about how much he's never caught off guard. Nothing happens he didn't know would happen. He can do whatever he wants. The text keeps saying he does whatever pleases him. He's never been surprised. He knows exactly how things are going to work out. This is how Piper put it. He said, when God looks at a painful or wicked event through his narrow lens... And that's his narrow lens. When he looks specifically at something painful and difficult with his vision, but still narrow, specific, he sees the tragedy of the sin for what it is in itself, and he is angered and grieved. As Ezekiel 18 says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. But then Piper continues. He says, but when God looks at a painful or wicked event through his wide-angle lens, through his sovereign lens, through his omniscient, all-knowing lens, he sees the tragedy of the sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing out from it. He sees it in relation to all the connections and effects that form a pattern or mosaic stretching into eternity. This mosaic, in all its parts, good and evil, brings him delight. The last line's strange, but I think it's true. When, when you know everything, when you can do whatever delights you, maybe you do just exist in this constant state of ultimate joy. This has really changed some of my understanding of God. For the better, I think. So when God has joy, when it brings him delight, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances, even as hardships and the brokenness of sin do what they do, and he still has joy, what it tells me is that I have thought of joy in such an anemic way. I think I've actually mostly thought of joy how we tend to talk about happiness. Temporary, goes away, when things don't go well. But the joy that we see the Lord having, it's deeper, it's richer, it's more robust. 
than our circumstances would lead us to believe. So this joy is, is something more than warm, fuzzy feelings. I think the joy that's described in the Bible has grit to it. I think it's stronger than I've ever given it credit for. Because if God delights most in himself, and he therefore delights in Jesus and Jesus' work, I think this joy is something different than what I've usually thought it was. Because here's how Hebrews 12 puts it. Talking about, coming out of the faith chapter 11, talking about what Jesus did. These are the words that the writer of Hebrews uses. He says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance in the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Before we go any further, that just basically says, like, you got this, this hall of faith, do what they do, keep your eyes on Jesus, do what he does. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. That is a complicated kind of joy. That is not the joy that I've often spoken of. That is thick, rich, gritty joy that is rooted in something greater than circumstances because if you're going to let circumstances dictate joy, I can't imagine hanging on a cross being all that joyful. But if your joy is rooted in something richer, deeper, then maybe this is something worth exploring. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus has joy that can move through pain, through suffering, through the crushing weight of the world's sin being poured out on him and then God's wrath being poured out on that. His joy cuts through that because he knew what lay before him. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians, he talks about his joy. He's describing his ministry to the, to the Corinthian church. And what's interesting to me is how he starts to root this joy. Like, what, what are the hooks that he's hanging this joy on? And what you get with Paul is you get that he is obsessed with this power of the Holy Spirit in him. You get that he is fascinated by the power of God himself, and you get that he depends deeply on the words of God, and then it produces in him a joy that is so foreign to many of us, at least to the degree that he experiences it. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians 6, speaking of his ministry, he says, we're not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, and by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet see, we live. As being disciplined yet not killed. As grieving yet always rejoicing. As poor 
yet enriching many as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul's life, if you were to just read the biography of Paul the Apostle, it was complicated. There were many occasions that merited complete and total despair. And yet he talks like this. Grieving, yet always rejoicing. So in Jesus, he has joy that cuts through the cross. In Paul, he has joy that cuts through grief. Notice how he doesn't say, there's no grief. Jesus still had the cross, found joy. Paul has grief, finds reason to rejoice. The Apostle Peter talks about his joy and the, the, the need or the appropriate response to rejoice. He talks about it in the context of the work of God in us and the work of God in the redemption of the world. What he does is he gives us a nice um, third installment here of the hope and then peace and then joy because in, in Peter's account here, he says it's because of his hope and because of the peace he now has with God that joy manifests. Like he links them. He says in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, because we now have peace with God. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Sounds very Pauline there. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise. So as our faith endures various trials, we rejoice and we praise. It may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ that he's talking about is the second coming. That's Advent 2. Christmas is Advent 1. The second coming is Advent 2. And Peter's telling us how to live in between them. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, as Jesus models, as Paul explains, as Peter exhorts, what they're not doing, they're not telling us to find a way to enjoy misery. They're not telling us that even though things are really bad, you should just be happy about it. Find a way to love it. What they're each saying, actually, is that, no, our joy is in something so deep, so imperishable, an inheritance so untouchable, rooted in a God who is so big and so glorious that it just stands above any grief and trials that you might experience. It doesn't say those things aren't hard. It just says if that's the darkness, the light is brighter than the dark is dark. 
And so, again, as I kind of worked through this, I, I realized that joy, it's not so tied to circumstances. It's rooted to a person. It's rooted to God. Joy has a name. So if God delights most in himself, and he therefore delights in Jesus, which means, as Jesus has modeled and established, that joy must have some degree of grit to it, I guess whatever our circumstances, God is our ultimate joy in life. Which brings us to our text. Again, the reason for the pink candle is actually the first word in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice, gaudete, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I know I'm not the only one in the room that thinks that sometimes Paul just sounds so aspirational. Rejoice in the Lord, all right. Always, mm, I don't know how to do that. And then he just says rejoice. I think he explains it though. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. That's Advent too. Peter says, Jesus is coming back soon. Therefore, rejoice. Be joyful. Be happy. Be glad. He's coming back. <laughs> Paul says the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. The Lord is near. He's coming back. That's great news. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't really say that there's nothing worth worrying about. It just says that when you know the one who hung the stars, who designed humanity, and who's going to put it all back together, and that there's never been anything beyond his abilities... When you can take your request to that person, not only should the worry kind of fade away, but the joy should bubble up. I like how Psalm 146 says it. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob. That's the God that Paul says in Philippians 4 that we should present our requests to. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. In this two verses in Psalm 146, we just get this beautiful reminder. Like we, we know this God. That's how Jim ended his message last. We know this God. There's nothing beyond his abilities. And so as he, who is faithful, doesn't change, has promised to put things back that produces happiness. Again, biblically, that's joy. Psalm 43 says, Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. And then I will come to the altar of God, to God my greatest joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, God my God. Um... I'm still kind of a glass half empty kind of guy. <laughs> but having stared 
down the barrel of this joy topic and seeing how happy God is and to see what sort of joy manifests in those who follow him and have an inheritance that is secured forever, I've resolved to find ways to be more joyful. I don't know how that's going to work out. But I'm, this just makes me want to... Like, Christian, shouldn't people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus be like the happiest people walking around? Like if, we take, if we really take in everything that that means and everything that that does for us from now into eternity, shouldn't we be the happiest? The light is so much brighter than the darkest dark. One of the ways that I think that I am going to foster more joy in my life is to keep reading through Ephesians or Philippians chapter 4. Because Jess read verses 4 through 7 to us. But I want to read verses 8 and 9. It won't be on the screen. But after urging the Philippian church to rejoice in God and to not worry, Paul tells them this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. I think if God is the source of joy, if I would consider God to be true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, then I should dwell on him more. And when I do, I think the joy should naturally bubble up. Because with my eyes on him, whatever frustrating thing I may or may not be going through today just kind of pales. Still got to deal with it. I'm not saying it makes it easier. It just rightly orders it. But my eyes are on the Lord, who is himself joy. If you, have, if you forgot to grab communion, I'm going to give you a second to go grab your communion in the back of the room. Um, this is what I want to do as we prepare our hearts and minds for, to share the meal. I'm going to read to you some song lyrics. Um, we're going to sing this song in a second. This is one of those songs that always comes out during Christmas. And it's seldom sung at any other time of year. It's a it's, it's Christmas song. But as I read the lyrics... It doesn't have really anything to do with Christmas. <laughs> Joy to the world is not a Christmas song. Joy to the world prescribes joy for those who understand how big and powerful and loving Jesus is as he reigns over all things. It doesn't really talk about a manger. But it's a beautiful song, and like I told Steve, I think we're going to probably have to find a way to start singing it in June and July, because I don't think it's a Christmas song. Um, but it is a song about the joy that comes. So I'm just going to read to you. It's one of those things, like, I could, I could just sing this song uh, because I know it, and, and I can sing it without even really paying attention to what I'm doing. But when you take the music away, and when you just read lyrics, you can kind of understand a little bit differently what they're up to. So you'll, you'll all know this one, but joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. 
At best, that's the only Christmas line in here. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. So we have a king named Jesus. And all of creation praises him. That's what that first group is about. Verse 2. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. That happened after his resurrection. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. In other words, all creation sings praises to the king who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's actually in like half the Psalms. Verse 3. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. Christ rules, he reigns, and that should bring joy to the world. So then we come to this meal. And this might be one of the best, most tangible, most visible expressions of the wonders of his love. And wonders of his love, and wonders of his love. So keeping that in mind, with this not Christmas song, we remember what Jesus did. And we remember the body given for us. And remember, celebrate the blood poured out for us. <laughs> 